0: move forward in our study of the book of Zechariah. So turn with me in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 11. If you're using that Bible under the seat in front of you, that's page 1099. Is that an IRS form of some kind? Yeah, Yeah, that's page 1099. Now this is a really important chapter of prophecy, not just in the book of Zechariah, but in the Old Testament. It is very important as Christians that we understand Zechariah chapter 11. So Father, I pray that you would give us understanding into this great chapter. Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that you are in charge and you have a plan, you have a purpose in history. And Lord, we take great comfort in knowing that even in the midst of great tragedy, you can use that for good things. So, Lord, open our eyes to what you have for us tonight from your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so the Old Testament prophets clearly predicted that God would send a Messiah to the nation of Israel. And those predictions, those prophecies were fulfilled. Jesus was the Messiah sent to the nation of Israel. Jesus was formally presented to the nation of Israel as their king, as their Messiah. Remember on the triumphal entry, he rode into Jerusalem on the donkey, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which we studied last time together. The Messiah was promised, and the Messiah was sent. But tragically, the nation of Israel, represented by their corrupt religious and political leaders, rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And so God rejected the nation of Israel. God set aside the nation of Israel temporarily. He put them aside to focus on something else. And today, Israel is still under that judgment. This chapter, Zechariah chapter 11, written in 550 BC, 600 years before Jesus came, predicts all of that. It's an incredible chapter. The chapter starts off with a prophecy of judgment against Israel. Look at it very carefully. Verse 1, chapter 11. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O Oaks of Bashan for the thick forest has come down there is sound of wailing shepherds their glory is in ruins there's the sound of roaring lions for the pride of the jordan is in ruins so this is a passage that predicts a complete dissolution of the nation of israel Israel is going to be judged. Israel is going to be completely desolated outside of the land of Israel. Three specific places are mentioned. Lebanon, way up north. Bashan, which actually is central and becomes all this area. And then the pride of Jordan which goes right down here into the Jordan Valley. So basically, it's speaking of a judgment against the entire nation of Israel within the entire land of Israel from north to the south. In Israel, way up north, you get to the highest elevations. And as you go down south, you get lower and lower and lower till you get to the Dead Sea, which is the lowest place on earth. And the picture here is judgment, a fire begins here, and it just flows all the way down. Israel is judged. The shepherds wail. The glory of Israel is in ruins. Okay, when was that fulfilled? Well, I believe that that was fulfilled in 70 A.D. When the Romans essentially destroyed what was left of the nation of Israel in the land of Israel. When Rome took over the Holy Land, they sort of humored the Jewish people. They allowed them to have their temple in Jerusalem. They allowed them to have their religious leaders. But they never gave full control to Israel. Israel had to answer to Rome. Eventually, Israel got tired of that, and in 66 AD, they began to refuse paying taxes to the Romans, and they began to revolt. So the Romans sent a guy by the name of Vespius down, and Vespius brought his son with him, a young man by the name of Titus. And they came to quell, to quench that revolt, and just as it says in this prophecy... They came from the north, they worked their way all the way down, absolutely destroying any Jewish revolt anywhere in the land. Eventually, all that was left were Jews that were holed up in the city of Jerusalem. In 70 AD, they laid siege to Jerusalem Titus was in charge, they dug a trench around the city, they built embankments, they let no one in or out, and incidentally, it coincided with a terrible famine. So everyone locked inside the city of Jerusalem was starving to death, and it was ugly. Josephus, the historian, writes this, of what they experienced and I quote all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews together with their liberty of going out of the city then did the famine widen its progress and devour the people by whole houses and families the upper rooms of women and infants that were dying by famine and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the age the children also And the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with the famine and fell down dead wherever the misery seized them. For a time the dead were buried, but afterwards when they could not do that, they had them cast down from the wall into the valleys below. When Titus, on going his rounds along these valleys, saw them full of dead bodies and the thick putrefaction running about them, He gave a groan and spreading out his hands to heaven called God to witness that his was not his doing. Josephus goes on to tell, and this is gross, they even resorted to cannibalism at that time. Just a horrific event in the history of Israel. That siege lasted 143 days. The Romans broke through the wall and it's estimated that somewhere between 600,000 to about 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered. The temple was completely destroyed, completely torn down. Not one stone was left upon another. 70 AD, Israel ceased to exist as a nation. And they would cease to exist as a nation for the next 1,900 years. And of course, we know all the trouble that Israel has experienced over the last 2,000 years. Scattered about, deported, all of that happening in 70 AD fulfilled. Now, why did that happen? Because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And this chapter makes that very, very clear. So I want you to read real carefully with me the next ten verses or so. And I want you to look at it closely. And we've got to read through all of it so you can see a bigger picture. And then we'll go back and we'll examine some of the details. Look what God tells Zachariah to do. In verse 4, thus says the Lord my God, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. Verse 7, Zechariah says, So I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds or unity. And I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them and their soul also abhorred me. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And I took my staff, Beauty, and I cut it in two that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the people. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages, how many? 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. Then I cut in two my other staff bonds that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So there's a lot going on in there, but the best way to understand this is to understand what God asked Zechariah to do. God asked Zechariah to act out a prophecy. God said to Zechariah, I want you to play the role of a shepherd and I want you to shepherd a flock that is destined for slaughter. I want you to shepherd a flock that's on its way to the butchers. And so Zechariah, no doubt, probably literally, publicly, in front of everybody, took a flock of lambs and began to shepherd that flock. And those lambs were probably Destined for sacrifice in the temple. So he becomes this shepherd. And he's very good to that flock. Look at verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs. The one I called beauty. The other I called bonds. And I fed the flock. So he became a good shepherd. To that flock. He brought Two staffs, beauty means grace, bonds. I, I want this flock to be beautiful. I want it to be unified. And he fed them. And the language says that he tended them. And he paid real close attention to the weak sheep in that flock. But then he encountered Opposition. Verse 8, it says, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. So there were some other shepherds that didn't like Zechariah playing this good shepherd with this flock. And they opposed him. And he told them to resign, dismiss them. Three of those shepherds went away. In one hour. But there was hatred. They loathed each other. And the idea here is that there was continual opposition between Zechariah as this good shepherd and these evil shepherds. So bad, eventually, that Zechariah was completely rejected. And so, Zechariah... Resigned as the shepherd. Verse 9, then I said, I will not feed you. Verse 10, I took my staff beauty, cut it in two, that I might break the covenant. He said, no, I I won't be the shepherd anymore. That flock is rejected. The shepherds that rule over that flock rejected. I'll resign. And he did. And then he said, what wage will you pay me? Choose a wage, give me a wage, or don't. And they, they decided we'll, we'll pay you 30 pieces of silver, which, by the way, was an insult. The law said that a handicapped servant or slave, a slave that had been gored by an ox, was worth the price of 30 pieces of silver. So what they're saying, it would have been better if they not have paid him. Giving them the 30 piece was like, you're useless, you're worthless. So Zechariah takes the price and the Lord says to him, get rid of it. Throw it into the house of the Lord. And eventually it will go to the potter. And then that judgment, that poor flock would experience all kinds of trouble. So this is a picture of exactly what happened at the first coming of Jesus Christ. The flock in this dramatic prophetic performance represents the nation of Israel at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah represents who? Jesus at his first coming. The evil shepherds represent the spiritual and religious leaders and political leaders of Israel at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Zechariah is acting out what Jesus will do at his first coming in relation to the nation of Israel 600 years before it happens. So, when Jesus came on the scene, What was the condition of Israel? Well, they were a train wreck. They were a flock doomed to slaughter. They were headed for 70 AD. They had fallen so far away from the Lord. Their religion had become utterly meaningless. And why were they headed for that judgment? Well, look at verse... 4 and 5 thus says the Lord my God feed the flock for slaughter whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt those who sell them say blessed be the Lord I'm rich their shepherds do not pity them in the day when Jesus showed up the nation of Israel was owned by corrupt religious leaders some say that this is the way the romans treated them i don't think so i think this is speaking Of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the priests. They didn't care about the common people of Israel. They cared about themselves. They used their religious power as a way to get rich. In fact, we know from history that the priests of Israel entered into some real fancy deals with the Romans. So that they could be high priests and have their priesthood. And they got Rich. They didn't care about the common people of Israel. So Jesus shows up and he wants to be a good shepherd to them. Verse 7 again, key verse. So I fed the flock for slaughter. In particular, the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs. The one I called beauty and the other I called bonds and I fed the flock. So Jesus comes on the scene and he wants to, he's their Messiah. He wants to help the people of Israel. He wants to bring beauty to them. He wants to unify them. He feeds them. He tends them. And it's real interesting. It says that he would pay particular, specific attention to the poor Among the flock. And that is exactly what Jesus did when he came at his first coming. He didn't spend a lot of time with the high and mighty in Jerusalem, did he? In fact, he picked uneducated fishermen to be his main guys. He reached out and ministered to the poor. Of Israel, And we're told over and over and over in the Gospels... The common people loved Jesus. He was a breath of fresh air. So different from the religious leaders. Well, when Jesus came on the scene... He experienced tremendous opposition. With who? Those religious leaders... Of Israel. Now, verse eight is interesting. It says, "I dismiss I three shepherds in one month." Now, that was probably fulfilled literally with Zechariah, but there's fulfillment in the day of Jesus with this as well. And and what is it? What are these three shepherds? Well, just let me tell you, there are over forty different interpretations of this. So, I don't think we can be very dogmatic. But I think these are the best too. When Jesus came on the scene, he destroyed, he dismissed the three primary roles of leadership in Israel: prophet, priest, and king. And why did he do that? Because Jesus himself would become prophet, priest, and king. That's a good interpretation, but I think another interpretation is better. There. There are those that try to classify the type of religious leaders that were, you know, in power over the Jews at that time. You can classify them into three categories. Some see it as the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the priests, the scribes, the elders, or the Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, whatever the case. But I think that makes the most sense to me. Jesus came on the scene, and his goal was to retire those guys, I mean, he went, he went after them. And the end of verse 8 says, My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. And there was a great battle. You know, it's so interesting to me, these biblical scholars, these intellectual, religious, elite scholars... should have welcomed Jesus right they hated Jesus I mean they were against Jesus at every step of the way in fact even at one point the religious leaders of Israel accused Jesus of doing his miracles by the power of Satan I can't think of anything more blasphemous They hated him. And Jesus grew tired of them. Jesus saved some of the strongest words that he ever spoke during his public ministry for the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. You know, I was just reading Matthew 23 the other day in in my daily devotional time. And the whole chapter, Jesus nailing the religious establishment of Israel in his day. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for neither you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is won, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Woe to you, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you're like whitewashed tombs which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, just as it's predicted, acted out here, that's exactly what happened when Jesus... And the religious leaders, they were dead set against. There was going to be no redemption of them. They rejected Jesus. They believed Jesus to be worthless. They wanted to kill Jesus. In fact, they waited for the opportune time when they would find a way to kill Jesus. And what happens? Judas becomes the betrayer. How much did he charge to betray Jesus? 30 pieces of silver. The religious leaders say, yeah, good deal. Here's 30 pieces of silver. It goes down. Afterwards, you remember Judas is, mourns his action. He tries to give the money back. And they won't take it. It's blood money. So what does Judas do with it? He throws the money Where? In the temple, it's collected, and what was it used to buy? A potter's field, just as is predicted here in this incredible chapter, Zechariah chapter 11. So, what did God do with the nation of Israel? What did God say he was going to do? Well, he judged them. Verse 6, I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord. Indeed, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land. I will not deliver them from their hand. Verse 9, clearly pointing to 70 A.D. and the horrors that the nation would experience. Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, what is perishing perish. Let those who are left eat each other's what? What? flesh. So Israel judged. Israel completely set aside. And all of this predicted. Now this is a sad chapter, isn't it? This is a sad thing for Israel. By the way, you should know that Jesus was sad. When he rode in to Jerusalem on that triumphal entry, when he rode in and he presented himself to the king, as the king is the Messiah to his nation, all four gospel accounts said that he went up on the mountain and he wept. And he said words like this. Listen to Luke chapter 19. It says, he drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying... If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Wow. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem. says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is now left desolate. Just an incredible. You know, some people think, was the rejection of Messiah by Israel, is that, can you really find that in the Old Testament? Right here. Well, it gets even sadder. Look what happens in verse 15. The Lord said to me next... Take for yourself the implements of a, what? Foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. So, Zachariah, now I now want you to play the role of another Shepherd, And this time, I want you to take up instruments of a foolish shepherd. In Hebrew, a cruel shepherd. An unkind shepherd. For indeed, verse 16, I'm going to raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care. Who will be cruel for my people who will not heal the brokenhearted, who will not feed, who will not take care. In fact, he will eat the flesh of their fat, and he'll tear their hooves in pieces. Oh, think it, tearing the hooves in pieces of a little sheep. So, what's going on here? First, I want you to play the role of the good shepherd, and you're going to show how the good shepherd gets rejected, So, since they reject my good shepherd, I'm going to give them a wicked shepherd. And you're going to play the role of the wicked shepherd. All right. What shepherd is this speaking of? Well, that shepherd hasn't come around yet. See, Israel... Ceased to exist as a nation in 70 AD. They didn't have a shepherd. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a political leader. After 1900 years, they've become a state again, and they are in the land of Israel, which is an amazing fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. But they're a democracy. They're not a monarchy. They're not a dictatorship. They haven't had this shepherd yet. So, I believe that the shepherd is referring to the Antichrist who will come on the scene in the future. So, if you look at all of Old Testament prophecy and and many of the New Testament prophecies as well, you know that it it teaches that there's this worldwide dictator who's coming on the scene. And he's going to come to power by making peace with Israel, they're going to enter into a peace treaty they're going to receive that shepherd. But then halfway through the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to turn on them and be very cruel to the nation of Israel, tear their hooves, not take care of them, eat the fat of their flesh, destroy them. And so it's got a very sad situation. When the good shepherd was presented to the nation of Israel, they didn't receive him. Later on in the future, another shepherd will be presented to them, and him they will receive. In fact, Jesus made that prediction in John chapter 5. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Again, another terrible moment that's coming for Israel. So remember this chart. Remember how the Old Testament prophets saw prophecy. They could only see the peaks. They couldn't see the valley. So the first coming and then this long gap And then we have the Antichrist coming. Do you realize that you have that gap right between verses 14 and 15 in Zechariah chapter 11? Rejection of the good shepherd. Acceptance and receiving the bad shepherd. By the way, the whole church age, the last 2,000 years has been taking place between verse 14 and verse 15 of Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, so the Antichrist gets put up on the scene. What happens to the Antichrist? Look at verse 17. Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So the Lord will deal with the bad shepherd. It says here literally that his arm's going to wither, his eye is going to be taken out, or something like that. You know, it's interesting. In Revelation chapter 13, it predicts that during the tribulation period, there will come a time where the Antichrist will be wounded on a world stage. And possibly even die and then go through this fake resurrection. Perhaps this verse is speaking about how he'll be wounded. In the eye, in the right arm, whatever that might be. But then after that, as you know, Jesus comes again, destroys the kingdom of Antichrist, and sets up his kingdom. Zechariah chapter 11, man. God's program in advance. Now, don't feel, well, yeah, you should feel sorry for Israel and all the tragic tragedy they've gone through. But there is going to be a good ending for Israel. You do know that. God is not through with the nation of Israel. After towards the end of the tribulation period, as the world gets ready for that last and final battle of Armageddon, as we're going to see next time together in Zechariah 12 through 14, Israel's going to return to Jesus. And so the state of Israel, the nation of Israel, will be saved one day. But still, even in the midst of all of this planning and the interaction of Jesus with the nation of Israel, and the tragedy on Israel. God was using all of that for a good purpose. The nation of Israel rejected Jesus, and of course they delivered Jesus over to the Romans, and they had Jesus crucified on the cross but really we know that that was something that Jesus came to do and he used that terrible situation to offer his life on the cross for the sins of the world. And then he would rise again that third day to be Savior and to make it possible that anyone can be saved if they place their faith in him. Our sins were placed upon Jesus at the cross. So at the center of God's plan in the whole story and the center of God's plan in the Bible has been the cross. story of the Bible is that we've all sinned and we've fallen short. And we need to have our sins forgiven. And the only way our sins can be forgiven is if someone righteous and holy and perfect pays for them in our place, which Jesus did. And that whole sordid story with Israel, as terrible as that was, was used to make that happen. The cross, salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that he made. It's the epicenter of history. It's the epicenter of the Bible. And my brother and sister in Christ, it's to be the epicenter of our lives. And I believe that's why Jesus made sure that we were given an ordinance to keep that event front and center in our lives as Christians. And we're about to partake of the bread, the juice that represents the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus commanded that we do this often. Why? So often we'll be reminded of the price that was paid so that you and I could be forgiven. So, Let's begin to prepare our hearts. Would you bow your heads with me? Close your eyes. Let's have the lights go down. Let's have the band come up to play. Those that are going to help me distribute, you can come on it. Before we partake of communion with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I just want to ask you, have you responded to the very central truth of the whole Christian faith, of the whole Bible, of all of history, that Jesus died on the cross for your sins? He really did that. And on the third day, he rose again. And there's only salvation through faith in him. Have you personally received him as your Lord and Savior? Do not make the mistake that the nation of Israel made. Rejecting their Messiah. No. Receive him. Oh, he's a good shepherd. Mm -hmm. He has a staff called beauty that he wants to place over your life. A staff called unity. He wants to feed you. He wants to take care of you. He wants to save you. He wants to protect you from all the false shepherds that are out there. He died for you. If you've not yet received him, I want you to receive him right now and then partake of communion with us. If you've not yet received Christ, I'd like you to invite him into your heart right now. You can pray a prayer along with me just like this. Say, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I thank you for dying on the cross for me and rising again. Be my Lord, be my Savior. Make me yours, now and forevermore. And help me to follow you and live for you. All right, as we distribute these elements, keep a, a, just a nice, wonderful attitude of thanksgiving and worship and reverence. Maybe if you've slipped away from the Lord, that tonight you would return to him. Worship him, thank him for who he is. Let him renew your salvation, renew your joy in him. Hold on to these elements as you get them. We'll all partake of them together as a congregation. Remember, there are two cups that you're going to be taking. The bottom cup will have the wafer, and the upper cup will have the juice. Let's pass these out. Lord, we thank you for this reminder tonight that you're the center of our life. You should be. That your sacrifice was great. May we never forget. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take together as a body. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Amen. Hey, I'd like to pray for anyone here tonight who is going through a health issue. Maybe you have some kind of a a sickness. We'd like to pray for you. I believe the Lord is here in power uh, to heal. So if you would like to be prayed for, I'd like you to stand up right where you're at. If you have, I see you in the back. Anybody else right here? Anybody else if you want to be prayed for right there? Excellent, right here. All right, so if you're comfortable and you're sitting around one that's standing up, why don't you go and and just lay your hands on that person? So beautiful to see. And why don't you pray, just one or two of you in that little group, pray for that person, pray for their healing, and then I'll close it. Just take some time to do that.